Okay, in 1 Corinthians, we've been, we've been looking at uh, chapters um, 12, 13, and 14 together. And I put a heading over each of them concerning spiritual gifts to try to keep that flow together. So when you think about chapter 12, first of all, what do you think of there? What do we learn about spiritual gifts in chapter 12? There's a diversity. Okay, there's a, there's a unity in diversity. There's a diversity of gifts. And then in chapter 13, what does chapter 13 add? Okay, that the, that the diversity of gifts to be used in love. And then chapter 14, what did chapter 14 add? To edify, to build up others in the body. So the purpose of purpose of gifts in the church is to build up others within the church. Um, church uh, one of the things we're going to see tonight: uh, spiritual gifts are not meant to edify oneself, but to edify others. Others' gifts are then used to build up you, and so we build up one another in love. So one of the um, thoughts that's claimed at time is that, well, I need to be built up. Well, that happens within the body. That doesn't happen on your own. When a body part seeks to build itself up on its own and draw to build itself up, that's called cancer, actually. That's not a healthy thing. So... Uh, what do you think about the steps that you get for learning your spiritual gifts? Mm-hmm. I've never taken one. Mm-hmm. There's, there's actually, I, I think they can be helpful. They're, they're somewhat limited. If you come in with the intention that this is what your gifting is, you can easily get that result. Uh, because you're giving all the information, you're responding to questions, and if you, if you, if you're gonna. If you respond to those questions in a way that'll steer the ultimate conclusion, most of those kind of spiritual gift inventories, they're not, um, uh, they're not seriously validated as a psychological instrument. There are some, there are some evaluations you can take where you answer a lot of questions. I think of like a, like a Myers-Briggs evaluation, for instance. You ask, you answer, seems like a couple hundred questions, and, and out of that, um, there's a real high validity as to what the responses indicate. They um, cross-compare different ways to ask questions, positively and negatively, and from different angles in ways that shows how valid, and even they'll indicate how much you're trying to how much you're trying to deceive or to steer the outcome. But these spiritual inventories are normally not done that well in, in, in terms of doing that. But what they do give is they ask questions, which are the same kind of questions you might ask somebody in a conversation. Okay, well tell me about, you know, ask you this, ask, just kind of help you to discern and to surface what your giftings might be. Um, I, I often use just two questions to do that. And that is, um, well, what what does a church really need? And often one's priority in a church will be related to their own passion and sensitivities that the Spirit has given them, often related to their giftedness. Another thing that um, I will ask is what, what our church really needs to be doing is, and when people put their, foot on a, put their finger on a need, oftentimes that need is related to a spiritual gifting as well. So when somebody comes to me with, you know, what we really need to be doing, I feel like the church should be, I'll often ask, well, what do you need from the church to help you to do that? 
because it's probably related to their spiritual gifting. And so um, inventories like that can be very helpful. We're actually never told, though, to search out and discover what your spiritual gifting is. We're just told to put it into use. And I think we, we um, it, it was a little, um, in the first century, it was probably a little more assumed. Um, I, I serve in ways that God opens for me and that I'm able to then make some contribution in, and that is surfacing the way God has gifted me within the body. Um, so it didn't have to be as finely tuned as it is today with having a test you can take to find out, okay, great, and I guess I can be a teacher because I apparently have the gift of teaching. And well, where's, okay. So. Remind me a little bit when you mentioned prophecy, it's not always to see into the future, it's that when it's happened or after it's happened, you say God was faithful and that was, he knew what was coming and that's spiritual gifts, you might be at the end of your life or die and people will say, that person really had this gift, something you might not be aware of, you having it, but then looking back and saying, yeah, or, or for instance, it might be that you never actually spend a lot of time labeling it, but other people see these things in you. Yeah. 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 They, they, we, we put a label on what we observe, what, what a person does, the difference that they make. And uh, there's different ways to define some of the gifts, too, like prophecy, for instance. Prophecy is going to be a focus on here, and so we need to come up with some kind of, of definition for that. But let's uh, look at, see, I have, I have notes prepared. Everybody have a hand, uh, outline handout? I think so. Okay. Um, orderly worship prefers prophecy over interpreted tongues for edification within the church body. Now, now prophecy over tongues, we're going to narrow the list. Remember I said we started off with a, quite a broad list, but not an exhaustive list of gifts. And then there's another, gift in, uh, there's another list in chapter 12, and it narrows some. And then there's another list, and it narrows a bit more. And you get to chapter 13, and you're down to three gifts. There's, there's knowledge and prophecy. Uh, well, now, I actually guess he compares. Well, 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 yeah, what was it? In chapter 13, there's knowledge and prophecy. Uh, there's tongues. And uh, also there's the gift of faith. So actually, I guess there's, there's um, at least four gifts listed in that much briefer list in, in the beginning of chapter, chapter 13. And then you, you get down to chapter 14, and we're especially focusing on tongues and prophesying. prophesying. So you, you get an idea of what the, what the um, issue was, where the spiritual gift issue was in Corinth. It was probably um, because Paul is, is clarifying and kind of backing them away from an overemphasis on tongues that suggests that the issues, the problems, were probably related in some way to tongues. And we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go. So, tongue, prophecy over tongues for edification within the church body. Uh, first 25 verses, prophecy better edifies both believers and unbelievers with understanding. Okay, chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, or earnestly desire spirituals, especially that you may prophesy. So pursue love. Love is not considered a spiritual gift. Love is a, is a, um, a principle by which the spiritual gifts are applied. Diversity of gifts used in love for the building up of others. So pursue love. Pursue that considering others, and then desire spiritual gifts 
that meet needs. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now what is that saying? What does that say about the gift of tongues, first of all? Verse 2. The language between you and God. Okay. For no one understands him. He, only, he, he speaks mysteries in the Spirit. One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. Now is that the normal understanding of tongues when we've seen it earlier in the New Testament? Where's the first time tongues comes up in the New Testament? In the book of Acts chapter 2. And there there are known languages that are actually speaking to different people that are there. In fact, we can flip over to Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost had arrived, and uh, there's, a, there's tongues of fire that appear, and rested on each one of them. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and to begin to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And... Um, Devout men from every nation under heaven, all kinds of different places, at the sound of this multitude, they came together, they're bewildered, verse 6, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed, verse 7, aren't these all, those who are speaking, aren't they Galileans? How is it that we hear them each in our own language? Parthians from Persia, and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Babylon, Judea, also Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues or languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? What is this all about? Others, ah, they're just filled with new wine. So it's, it's unusual, it's different, but it's recognizable languages. Now we would expect, whenever tongues is mentioned beyond that, without any further explanation, we would, we would expect to understand it in the same way unless it's described differently. One of the things that's mentioned about tongues today is that no, no, this is different than the first century. This is different than Pentecost. It's not another language like people in Cappadocia or Zulu in South Africa or some other language. It's, um, you know, for, for missionaries today, imagine if you could have, have Arabic by tongues. Have to go to language. Boy, that would save two years, right? <laughs> All kinds of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But 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 that doesn't. But tongues is not claimed to be used in that way currently. But rather, it's as Tom described, it's a heavenly language. Is that actually what chapter fourteen is describing? And then the tongues in Acts, though, do we do we think that? What they were saying, they understood. Somebody else understood it, but did the people that were speaking Persian, did they know what they were saying, or just the people that heard them? So that's kind of... That's a good question. Hold that thought. We might come to something else that will add a little more light onto that. But it also says it here, though, it's no long, tongues are no longer necessary. But it says, but if you are going to use it, you yes. have an interpreter. Yes, yes. So, so, in order to have an interpreter, it doesn't have to be a language that somebody knows. Or if I'm just speaking gibberish, are you supposed to understand what I'm speaking? 
Well, there's two ways. You could be speaking a language um, by the Spirit. By the Spirit, you're given the ability to speak this language like Cappadocia or Parthenian or uh, uh, Babylonian, whatever. And then those who are from that area. See, at Pentecost, you have all these people who have come back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost from all these surrounding nations. And they've come back, and now they're hearing not Hebrew or Aramaic, but they're hearing in their own, in the language of the land that they came from. From these, not in Israel language, but in a foreign Gentile language. That's going to come to play a little bit later, so hold on to that. And, um, but they don't need an interpreter because they understand those languages. And so they're each in their own language hearing these wonderful works of God. Now, otherwise, yes, there's, so there's, there's, you, you can interpret a tongue because you speak that, neg- that language natively, or you speak, it, you speak it humanly, not spiritually, or you can be given the gift of interpretation. Some can be given the gift to speak in a language, others can be given the given a spiritual gift to understand a language that they don't naturally know and understand. So that can be the other way that interpretation can happen. But, you're right, we're going to find that that don't speak in a tongue unless it's interpreted. And I think hold, that thought is going to, is going to um, explain this line in verse 2. No one understands he utters mysteries in the Spirit. It's not helpful to anybody. This is, verse 2 is not a positive statement. It's a statement that doesn't build up the church. It, it, it's not going to it's not going to build up the person speaking to God if the person speaking in the tongue doesn't know what they're saying. So even in terms of a prayer language, but I don't know what I'm praying. So I'm not edified either. And and we'll come across that later. Okay, verse three. On the other hand, one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. You see the contrast. There's a positive statement versus the negative statement. So if you take verse 2 just by itself, it sounds, oh, oh, I'd like to speak in a heavenly language to God, a direct language to God. But verse 3 kind of shows, no, actually, that's not, that's not desirable. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. What do you do with verse 4? The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. What about that? Is that okay? I've had people tell me, but I need to be built up. But I, I'm not supposed to build myself up. That's not the way the body works together. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, there's a negative and a positive again. One of them be one in private and one in public. Well, again, we're, 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 uh, if we take chapter 12, 13, 14, big picture, and we're going to unpack this 14 big picture, but there's a diversity of gifts exercised in love, and love is outward-looking, not inward-looking, right? Love directs out toward others rather than loving oneself. Okay, so, so a diversity of gifts used in love for the building up of the body. Spiritual gifts are for, in the church, are for the building up of the body. And that's, that's the topic of Paul's conversation here, is how should spiritual gifts be used in the church? So, in that, so, so we've got to limit how we, what we take away from chapter 14 within that church context rather than an individual prayer closet context.
Okay. Yeah, Ty. In contrast, I, I think about Nehemiah this morning when he shared, and you know, I feel like I need to take the next step forward in my faith. So you're thinking, well, that's how does that contrast with building yourself up? You know, in, in other words, we do want to grow, but, you know, he's saying, um, you know, mm-hmm, build mm-hmm. yourself up, but you grow in your faith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, okay. A person could, hearing those, say they sound pretty similar. I mean, you're growing okay. in your faith, a person growing in stature, growing in faith. These are both but building yourself up is different than that. Sure. I would, I would say, it kind of depends on how, we, how do we understand what building ourselves, yeah. what, what, what growing looks like. I want to take the next step in spiritual growth is going to be, rather than building myself up, it's going to be giving myself for the sake of others. In the essence, that's what the spiritual life looks like. That's what the Christian life looks like. Giving myself away for the sake of others is actually spiritually growing. Giving is growing. Rather than seeking, uh, how do I build myself up in serving except to, to serve in giving myself? So I don't, I don't, in, in seeking to grow, I'm going to take the next step God has for me, even if that's a difficult step. It takes something from me, like I have to push aside this, this um, not willing to embarrass myself before the church in baptism. I'm willing to be baptized for the sake of trusting myself to God. Yeah. Tom. So to say, when you read your prayer, help me to understand what someone else needs, that's not building yourself up. No, that's, that's um, well, first of all, you're saying, I, w- w- what I hear there is, I don't know myself, I need, I need God, I need your help to serve somebody. And uh, I do need your help to know their needs so that I could serve them. No, I don't see that as a building myself up. I see that as a, a seeking to give myself for others, which is, it is an increasing maturity, or maybe it's simply a moment of maturity, but that's kind of how, where maturity comes from, is in moments of maturity, right? So, so yeah, tricky. You, you, you want to promote, promote spiritual growth. And, and as we're being built up within the body, we're going to act more maturely. But it's, the child wants to be big for big's sake. Right? The, the mature person wants to act mature for the benefit of others. Wants to do the things adult do, which is caring for others and looking out for those who aren't able to as much look after themselves. The, the child that wants to grow and be big, doesn't want to be big for that reason. They want to be big so they don't get bullied. They want to be big so they can beat others at something. They want to be big for self-reasons. And the same thing plays out in the church in spiritual gifts. There are some in Corinth, I think, that are actually being recognized for their spirituality by a demonstration of spiritual gifting. And so they'll even use that demonstration in, in um, unhelpful, non-building up ways that ends up simply drawing attention to themselves. And that's actually detrimental spiritually rather than helpful. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church, builds up others. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. For the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless somebody interprets so that the church may be built up. 
Tongues in itself, unless there's something understandable in it, can't build up anybody. Just to have, gee, wow, that felt spiritual, isn't building up spiritually, as far as spiritual maturity. It can be like uh, spiritual candy, I guess, or cake, but it's not, it's not, it's not healthy spiritually in and of itself. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> okay. The definition of tongues, is that laid out in the Bible where we understand it's not prayer that he's talking about here? Well, well, we want to, we want to, we want to keep poking at this idea of prayer. I think, I think in the context, verse 2 is not speaking of tongues as, as, um, a prayer language to speak to God, that's a positive use. Verse 2 is a negative contrast to verse 3. On the other hand, prophesy speaks up, speak to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and, consol- and consolation or comforting. So there's a contrast. There. So verse, if we're looking for that, in verse 2 we don't find it yet. So because that's out there a lot in churches today, let's, let's, let's keep that... But uh, let's keep that at hand. Let's let's keep looking for that. Maybe we'll find it somewhere else. The first five has been pretty concerning to all of us because we don't do that. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Now, first of all, what what we mean by tongues? Yes, but even more to prophesy. That's what I really want you to do. One who prophesies is greater unless somebody interprets so that the church may be built up. Okay. Now, brothers, verse six. Uh, coming to verse 6, we're moving into tongues are not a primary gift in the church because they're dependent on other gifts if they're going to be useful or edifying or building up. If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If in the tongue... Let's say um, in the tongue I'm teaching about the great works of God in the Cappadocian language or the Babylonian language and there's Babylonians or Cappadocians there like in Acts chapter 2 that's going to build those up. That's going to strengthen them. It's going to remind them of the great works of God in their own language. Okay, and look, how did God do that with these Galileans for them to tell me the great works of God even in my own language? It got extra attention in that way. So that was edifying, but only because they could understand it. To hear somebody rattle off something, and I don't care if it's a... What's often done today where it's said that that, that's an angelic heavenly language in the church, or if it's just biblical Hebrew... Or maybe it's Zulu or Kosa or Siswati. And yet if nobody in the room understands it, it would be as if gibberish to us. It, it couldn't edify us at all. We don't know what's being said. Yeah. So usually when you speak, you speak first and then people interpret. So how do you know? Like, yeah, that's good. It seems like such a caution that mm-hmm. you're like, oh, this is a gift I have. It's like, mm-hmm. How would anybody else know? Right. Because you're the gifted. Yeah. So there's a potential for all kinds of things to go wrong there. Now, if it's a known earthly language, not so much. Anybody in the room could potentially check the interpretation because that person is actually from there, knows that language. 
Oh, well, well, today, yes, yes. And one of the things that's commonly, commonly uh, been done over the years is that not only, in, at least in some of the episodes of, of tongues occurring in, in churches, is that it's A, not any recognizable human language, but B, it doesn't even follow the patterns that an unknown to us language still has. It ends up being a particular kind of repetition of the same things. And uh, so, um, but we should start with the expectation that tongues would be, would still be being used as it was used, because when, when Luke writes the book of Acts, he's not writing before Corinthians. He's writing after Corinthians, after Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians. And there he's describing tongues now, as this is what tongues is. And we would need to look for a reason in the passage to understand tongues differently than as earthly languages. Does that make sense? Okay, okay. Because, because Luke's with Paul, Luke's traveled in these circles, and so when Luke talks about languages, for the benefit, he's writing Luke and Acts for the whole Mediterranean circuit, and so he's, used, he's describing tongues, the same word, glossia, which is a normal Greek word for languages. That's not an unusual. It would be, it would be unusual to think of it in another term, as it's not like a special term that this is a heavenly language. A heavenly language is not an adjective that's added to. It's just, we understand tongues. So we'd expect to keep seeing it used in its normal usage and the way that it's been used in the New Testament. Until we have a reason within the context. No, 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 this is a different use here. So that's what we're going to look for. Is there a prayer language? And that would open up some ground of common ground with our charismatic brothers and sisters if there was. Okay. So, um, speaking in tongues, tongues itself doesn't benefit. It needs to come with another gift. Knowledge, prophesy, or teaching. Another gift that does edify. That's verse 6. Even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or a harp, do not give, if they do not give a distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will, who will get ready for battle? If the bugler just blows some sounds, you know, some notes, but it's not the right pattern. There's a particular pattern of notes that means charge. There's another pattern of notes that means retreat. There's a pattern of notes that means wheel to the left or wheel to the right. And so the, the, the general can command the battlefield through the bugler if everybody knows what the notes he plays mean. If they don't know the notes, if they can't interpret the tongue of the bugle, then it's not going to help on the battlefield. And um, in music, if the flute or the harp just play random sounds, random sounds don't edify. When they're together in a way that makes sense to us, that we follow the melody, oh, now it's beautiful music. And we might have some differences as to what beautiful music actually is, but certainly there's some recognizable patterns and aspects to it. Distinct notes. Okay. So yourselves, if your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech, now here we go, with your tongue, glossa, now this is a noun, not the glossia for, um, let's see, the Greek word for tongues over here is, well, actually the same word, same noun, speaking in tongues, glossa. If with your tongue, glossa, you utter speech, 
that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? You will be speaking into the air. Again, that's not a positive thing. That's not, well, that's a prayer language. That's, that's not what's talked about yet. There are doubtless many different languages where? In the world. In the world. And none is without meaning. They all have meanings, but if you don't know the meaning of the language, I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. We won't understand each other. And if you've traveled much, you've experienced that. You, you ran into that in India a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all kinds of talking going on. I don't know, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> I get a little nervous, actually. <laughs> right? But there must have been some of the incoherent tongues going on, or he wouldn't even address it. There's, there's a problem that he's correcting. There's a problem that he's correcting. And, and one of the things that, that helps, when, when you get a grasp of what Paul is saying, the next step is actually to, to work backwards from there. What was the problem at Corinth? And uh, so, so, yeah, I'd like to press into that a little bit once we finish unpacking. Yeah. that come up and they would utter a gibberish and then people would kind of say, oh, this is what that person said. This, these were false religions, but then people would do that. An oracle. They would call them like an oracle. Okay, yeah, yeah, the oracle of Delphi. Yes, yeah. Is that completely foreign to this culture? No, no. How much of that happened in, in Corinth? I'm not sure. And exactly what it looked like, but the, um, yeah, there was there were hallucinogenic drugs. There was, um, there were demonic spirits spirits that would oftentimes possess this priest who would give these oracles. Yeah. My understanding of the, that the oracle was not necessarily in, in a gibberish language, however. Mm. It was spoken in a language that, that, that was understood. But it, wa, it, would, it was often related to both hallucinogenic drugs as well as, as um, there were demonic spirits involved. So, like the Oracle of Delphi, which was, the, was probably the best known one in Greece, that was the big deal. And it's a big tourist site today as a result of that. Uh, was big in history, should we go to war or not, uh, kind of thing. And um, that was definitely, there, were, there, were, there was spiritism involved in it. So that's one of the things that's that 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 has been described in commentaries or notes and so on. Yeah, that there's and how much of that I'm not really aware, and I'm cautious to build too much just on a historical background that we only have sketches of. So I'd rather I'd rather try to land if I can out of what's in the scripture and leave a little wiggle room. I don't want. There's no need to be too harsh and limiting, but we do want to get out of this. What are spiritual gifts really? And what should we actually pursue? Okay. Many kind of languages. I'd be a foreigner if I don't understand it, and, and they to me. So yourself, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Now take that um Take that phrase, combine it with verse 1, especially that you may prophesy. Why? Because prophecy speaks to people in verse 3 for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. 
One who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. One who prophesies builds up the church. I want you all to speak in tongues, but rather that you, I want you to prophesy, because prophecy is greater than speaks in tongues, so that the church may be built up. You see that? And he, and he circles back around to that statement again in verse 12. Verse 12 reinforces what he's already said a couple of times before. So he, he's expressing a clear preference without forbidding. That's the balance that he's walking here. There is a, the, there is a, a gifting, a supernatural ability that the Spirit has given within the church to speak in another language. And he's not denying that. But he's, he's talking about what the emphasis in the church is. Now we're going to deal with, well, why does God do what he does in, in Pentecost? As we go a little further. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a, a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. You know one of the things that used to amuse me on the mission field? Missionaries love to get together and pray, each in our own language. And so you have all these different languages in prayer, and then we say amen. What's wrong with that? Well, it is tongues, but we don't know what each other are saying. Right. Well, most of them understood the English person's praying, but the other languages, we don't know what they're saying. We don't know if we can amend that or not. Maybe I can't say amen to that prayer. Yeah, maybe they were praying that Bob doesn't get cake. I don't know. <laughs> Should I amend that? I don't know. <laughs> But we love to hear the languages, you see, because of other passages of Scripture about every tongue and tribe and nation. Oh, there's another place where tongues used that it's an earthly language. Well, plus, though, you guys were in, everybody was in the same situation, too. So it was understandable. But you guys were all praying for this right thing. Well, we, I don't know. I don't know what they were praying That's the whole point. Right, right. <laughs> I don't know. And he's actually going to get to that. Okay, but okay, if if uh, the one who who speaks in a tongue they should pray and interpret, even if even if it's in prayer. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I don't know what I'm praying. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. I also want to know what I'm saying and what I'm singing rather than just opening my mouth and letting my tongue fly. That's what he's describing here. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? That was my trouble on the mission field, not because I had something against tongues or languages. I didn't, but I didn't know what we were praying. And so I didn't know what I could say amen to. I couldn't really join in with the prayer. You know how one person leads in prayer, but you're all following along and agreeing in your mind with the prayer that is being expressed for the group. But if you don't know the language, you can't do that. That's what he says here. How can the outsider, the ungifted, let's see, I think that word, outsider there, or, or yes, it's also translated in some versions, how can the ungifted one, him that is without gifts, him that is not gifted in tongues, how can they say amen? Okay. Verse 17, For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. You may be, you may be giving thanks, but you don't really know 
If you yourselves don't know what it is that you're praying. That goes back to verse 4 then. Where it says you pray after yourself, for yourself, or you pray after The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Um, Because if you're praying and no one understands you, the only thing you're doing is building up yourself, right? Yeah, drawing attention to yourself. Ooh, you're spiritual. But we don't, we're not helped by it. Yeah, we haven't prayed with you because we haven't understood anything. So we haven't genuinely prayed. He says we pray with our spirit and our mind. We should sing with our spirit and our mind. Sometimes in church, there'll be a strange word like, Here I raise my Ebenezer. What does that mean? Well, now and again, somebody will say, You know, this word Ebenezer, what that means is, is God has helped me. Or I, I have, I have, I, I am here by God's help. And then the song goes on, Hither by your help I come. The song actually is interpreting that word Ebenezer. God helps. And so, but if people don't know that, you know, next generation comes along, they don't know what Ebenezer means other than it's Scrooge's first name. And so we, we, we add in what does that mean so that people know what they're singing. If I don't know what I'm singing, I'm not edified. And so even in terms of a single word, that can be helpful. Uh, going back, where were we? We were verse about 19. I thank, verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, says Paul the missionary. That could be very helpful in his line of work, actually, couldn't it? He comes into a new place, and God allows him to speak. How did Paul, Paul didn't go to language school. Well, he uses Greek, which is, a, which is the um, language of the, of, the, of the world, by and large, at that time. And yet, you, go, you get into rural areas, and you're also going to run into language barriers. Even as English, English is the, the de facto language, universal language or trade language of much in the world, but you can go lots of places, even in the English-speaking world, like India, and you can run into a whole lot of people that don't speak any English. Africa would be the same way. A whole lot of people still that don't speak any English. Even in India, there's four or five different dialects, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. My wife can speak Marathi, but she can't speak Hindi. Oh, oh, goodness, yeah, yeah. I would say more than... Hindi, she just can't speak it. Yeah. My mother-in-law couldn't speak any, but she understood it all. You know, my father Yeah, yeah, yeah. Typically, in various regions, there might be one more dominant, but depending on where you are in the region, in the neighboring regions, you could have you could have multiple languages, like you say, five or six, that you're going to find people in that area that speak. You go across India as a whole, and I don't know, I don't know. Do you know how many languages are spoken in India as a whole, Steve? I don't. I know it's a lot. I would say at least eighteen to twenty. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of languages in India alone, for sure. So traveling in India. If it gives a tongue, would be tongues would be would be beneficial. Paul says, "I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all." He's not dissing tongues, only a misuse of it. That's what he's 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 confronting. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than ten thousand words in a tongue. There's a whole lot of tongues, whole lot of whole lot of mother tongues. You get that? Still used the same way, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So, so 
Paul would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others. He's saying the same thing yet again. In order to build up others. Others-centered, rather than speaking 10,000 words in a tongue that others aren't going to understand. That's the implication there. Now, hmm, I can tell you, I think, Bob's version, Bob's own private little heresy here, I can tell you, I think, what those five words are. Curious? Want to know? You've seen this before. Ah, got to get the board out. Here we go. Come on. Come on, board. Here we go. You've seen this before. Maybe in a bumper sticker, right? And in the bumper sticker, you've got something like this. Something like that, right? Seen that? This is a Greek word, uh, transliterated, you would say ichthus. Gives you the I. The key, the X, gives you the CH. The theta, it's not an O, it's, a, it's not I-X-O-Y-E. The theta, with the line through it, gives us the TH. The, what looks like a Y, is actually the capital letter for the Greek letter Upsilon, whereas the lowercase looks just like our U. It's a U, Upsilon. And the, the, that is the, well, it's my best version of the Greek letter Sigma, which is where we get our S, so I give it an S here in the transliteration. Ichthus. You know what Ichthus means? Fish. It means fish. Yes. So that's why the fish symbol means fish. That's pretty easy so far. Okay, well, it's also... Ah, I have trouble with sigma. Okay, I-X-O-Y-E. Each of these, this is an acronym. Ichthus stands for five Greek words, which are the essential doctrinal statement of the first century church. This is for Jesus, Jesus. A key is for Christos, Christ. The theta is for theos. In fact, um, a key or key row, x, r, or, and, and the theta were used as abbreviations for Christ and, and God in many New Testament manuscripts. Instead of writing out theos, they would just put a theta by itself. So, Jesus Christ, God, U is for uios, which is the Greek word for son, and the, the uh, sigma was for soteros, Sotera, which is Savior. So the essential doctrinal statement, the confession of the early church, is Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. That's what Paul would rather focus on in the church rather than anything else. So when you see the fish bumper sticker, the identification among Christians, and there's a bit of a play going on there. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. Yeah, and um, you, you're catching fish, and now you will catch men. 
and there's the, there's the fish symbol, and it's the essentials of their early doctrinal statement, their confession, their shared confession of faith together. So, what the five words are, there's even meaning there in what those five words are. It can be understood. Okay, Norton's getting a little excited there. Okay. Brothers, don't be children, you're thinking. Be infants in evil. Be naive about evil. Don't, don't be well-steeped and knowledgeable about evil. But in your thinking, be mature. Hmm, that's odd to be thrown in here. What's he still talking about? What's he been talking about? Tongues. He's been talking about tongues. And all of a sudden, now he's talking about, I want you to be, I want you to think about this rightly. I want you to be mature in your thinking. I want you to, to um, I want you to be children and be infants in evil, but be, be mature in your thinking about this. In the law it is written, by people of, a strange, of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Okay, I think in verse 21 here, oh, Oh, I gave you the acronym right there in the, on, the, on the notes as well, didn't I? That was generous of me. So, so the, the purpose of tongues is to be used in the right way. Be right in your thinking. By a people of strange tongues and my lips of foreigners, I will speak to these people. What is that about? Where did that come from? He says in the law it is written. If I look for a cross-reference here, let's see, by the quote, I have a cross-reference. I have a cross-reference in Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, and also Deuteronomy 28, 49. Let's take a quick look. We should look at Deuteronomy because Paul says, in the law it is written. And normally, the, the law could speak to the entire Old Testament. But typically they would speak of the law and the prophets, or the law and the writings and the prophets. So the law would push us back to Moses, first of all. It would push us to Deuteronomy. Let's look there first. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who will not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offering spring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. Why is he doing this? Why will the Lord send this nation? All, verse 45, all of these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is what's going to happen to Israel if they do not continue to be faithful to God in his covenant with them. They're going to end up being invaded by foreigners and instead of their enemies fleeing before them, they're going to flee before their enemies and they're going to end up being taken captive into a foreign land where there God will speak to them in, um, through an unknown tongue. So hearing in an unknown language is not a blessed thing to Israel. When that happens in Jerusalem, that's not a blessed thing. It's a warning of judgment. It was prophesied in Deuteronomy. And was that prophecy in Deuteronomy fulfilled? Did that happen? Let's look at the other cross-reference. If I go back to 1 Corinthians 14, Isaiah 28. 
And there Isaiah says, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, This is rest, to give rest to the weary. This is a repose, yet they would not hear. I will speak to this people, yet they would not hear. So God will carry, carry, him away from, carry him away to Babylon. And there in Babylon they'll hear these foreign languages and foreign tongues which should remind them of Deuteronomy. And it is a declaration that what God had warned them of has come true because Deuteronomy 28 and 29 also tell them that even from there, when they turn and face this this, this um, land God had given them, and they pray towards the city in which God has set his name, God will hear from heaven, and he will return them. That God will return them from that captivity back into his promised land for them. That God will expel them in discipline and judgment, but that God will restore them and bring them back. That's Deuteronomy 28 and 29. It's predicted. The Babylonian captivity, Assyrian captivities, are predicted ahead of time. Isaiah tells them, it's coming. It's coming. If you continue in this path, what Deuteronomy said is exactly what's going to happen. And yet they did not hear. And so he says, I want you to understand what the gift, what tongues is all about. Tongues is actually an expression of judgment being declared to God's people Israel. There in Jerusalem, they're hearing those foreign tongues again. They're reminded of the exile because of their unbelief. And they have again not believed God and his promise for them. And that's going to be the message. When Peter stands up and preach, what does he say? This, this man whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead, which is the proof that he is the Messiah. And the men of Israel are cut to the quick. What shall we do? Believe on him whom you had rejected. Believe on him and God will send you times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And so Peter is again offering them to believe their Messiah whom they have rejected. But because they've rejected him, they are again, they again have God's judgment looming over them. I mean, if you thought not listening to Moses was bad, what about not listening to the one that Moses told them was coming? Remember Deuteronomy, is it 18.15? The Lord your God will send unto you a prophet like unto me, Moses says, and unto him you must listen. And the one who does not listen, it will be required of him. There's going to be a price to be paid. And so they, were, they, they didn't listen to Moses and they wound up in Babylon. And tongues is a reminder of that. So Pentecost is not just, oh look, the Spirit's come, just like Joel said. Well, it's that too. But it's, it's, it's multi, there's more than that going on. It's also a, a, a warning. God is warning as forcefully as he come. I'm about to have my man Peter stand up here and you all better listen to him. Because you need to change, repent and change your response to my son, your Messiah. Or it's going to cost you dearly. Even as it did your forefathers in a trip to Babylon. Does that make sense? 
what's happening at least in the book of Pentecost that's what's going on with tongues that's the starting point now as Paul travels around the the Greek Mediterranean world he's going to which which building in town first Paul starts at the synagogue where's he end up he, start, he starts in the Paul always checked out the synagogues and the jail. He checked the Google Maps. He said, okay, where's the synagogue? Where's the jail? Because the synagogue's where he's going to start. The jail's where he's going to end up, right? Okay, so he, he, he goes to the synagogue and he, if there's any Jews in town, that's where they are. If there's any Israelites around, and is the gift of tongues used? Maybe. And maybe Paul is, is able to speak not only in the Greek language they understand as a trade language, maybe he's also able to speak in a local language. And maybe God gives him that ability over and over again because God through him is warning Israel in the dispersion. Synagogue by synagogue, kind of like Jesus does in the land of Israel, that their Messiah has come and they better not ignore him. And so there's that warning that comes along with it, just like the population of Jerusalem gets when they all hear these foreign languages right in Jerusalem, which is the same thing that happened when Babylon invaded. Jerusalem all of a sudden was filled with the languages of foreigners. And it wasn't just the Babylonian language. When Babylon invades Israel in 586, is it just Babylonians? Or is it all the various other peoples whom Babylon has also conquered that make up the various elements of their armies? Um, same thing with Rome. In fact, it, was, it wasn't mostly Romans that destroyed the temple in 70 AD. It was predominantly Syrians who were part of the Roman army, and yet the Syrian component of the army, they were the closest ones. And they also had a hatred for the, for, 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 for the Jews. And so they were very eager. Titus didn't actually want them to overrun the temple and destroy it. And yet they did because of their anger and hatred for the, for, for, for the Jewish people as, as nearer relatives. And uh, so, so there's that aspect, even of the Babylonian invasion, of multiple languages in the mix. Okay, so there's the biblical purpose of tongues initially. Is it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a sign of blessing. It's a warning of judgment. That's the Old Testament. That's the law and the prophets version of what tongues is about. Who would it? Yeah. It, well, and, and I think when Paul is Paul when Paul speaks in tongues, I think it's not so much merely that he's able to talk to people because he can speak their language. I think actually he's demonstrating the reality of Deuteronomy 28 in a Jewish synagogue context. He's demonstrating the reality of Isaiah in a Jewish synagogue context. That's what I think is going on. And so it, still, it, it, had, it had a valid place in that mission moment. And that would be, remember we talked about last week how tongues runs down on its own? Because the generation that rejected Messiah is coming to a close. The following generations, even like the generation in the wilderness, there's a generation that comes along in the wilderness that hadn't, hadn't rejected Moses and said, take us back to Egypt. No, God lied to us. God, God isn't going to be able to bring us into that land. The generation that said that, God says, well, you're not going in. 
But the next generation that comes along, they're going in. God doesn't hold them accountable for the sins of their fathers. And so that generation that rejected Jesus personally, in time, they receive this warning of judgment. And as that generation passes, there's no longer a need for that exercise of the gift of tongues in that same way. Because the next generation that comes along doesn't have the opportunity to hear and reject the Messiah in person in the same way that they did. So it's a unique historical moment. That's why tongues happens there in ways that we shouldn't necessarily expect to continue. And Paul says, it's not a church thing. And so that's why I think even when Paul uses it as he travels, if Paul spoke in tongues more than they all, I think it's because it was a synagogue by synagogue thing. Pentecost is taken on the, on the, on the road tour, so to speak. And everybody gets the same opportunity to be confronted as those Jewish people in Jerusalem did. And it had its impact upon them, didn't it? There were 2,000, there were 3,000, 5,000 totally apparently, who were saved in those first couple of messages. And yet it was a dramatic, particular, historical moment. Those who had known and heard and followed Jesus, I mean, there were thousands that we heard about this morning. They're trampling one another. And yet the Pharisees and the chief priests rile them up into rejection. And in some ways, it's not unlike Peter from a different direction. They, they're riled up to believe that Jesus has misled them. Peter is, is um, intimidated by fear. But Peter is restored. And how many of those multitudes that had followed Jesus and then joined the crowd that said, Crucify him, crucify him, are also graciously restored. When, and, and, and that happens through God's pouring out the Spirit and perhaps even that warning of, This is what you've done. You've rejected Messiah, and what remains then, you're not going to leave her comfortably in Jerusalem much longer. What remains for you is captivity. What remains for you is exile again. And that's what happened to Jewish people in Israel. They were exiled again. And so I think tongues fits that historical moment far more than anything going on in America today. My own perspective on it. So what, what do we say? Because when I've watched enough charismatic mm-hmm. stuff, and, and they do say, like, oh, this person said this whole sermon, there was a different language, and then there was someone who understood it. So mm-hmm. it feels like there's still, at least unless it's, it, it's a, like a line culture, which I don't necessarily know. Um, so what do we say about something like that? Do we think, well, people can still kind of make this work in some sort of mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. or it's not something we find appropriate, but there is still... A way to the variable, or is it completely like this is demonic? <laughs> Which I've never gotten that impression. We used to go to a charismatic church, and we were around people that would do it, and you're like, it's different in mm-hmm. our culture now, but mm-hmm. it seems mm-hmm. like at the time, you're like, mm-hmm. I don't know, what, what do we. What do you think about Well, I think to, to, to kind of cut to the chase a little bit, Paul's approach here seems to be, don't forbid, but prefer this. Okay. So that's certainly where I would start. That's safe ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to forbid that. What I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to expect it to be used in ways that seem to fit the descriptions in Scripture, which is there's a place for tongues. I'm not sure what it is fully today, but it doesn't seem to be for building up in the church. It might be in a 
a cross-cultural setting where there's a need of a language and, and, and you hear these, these anecdotal stories, that could very well be. I don't know. I don't have any reason to deny that. And that wouldn't contradict what I'm seeing in Scripture, but I'm also seeing a particular purpose that Paul describes. He tells them, please be mature in your thinking, not just in general. He wants them to be, understand what is the right use of tongues. What is God's intention in tongues? That's mature thinking. And that's different from what is normally talked of in terms of, quote, prayer language. Or control, you know, that's, that's always spoken about, be under control. Be filled with the Spirit, not drunk with wine, be under control. I was talking to somebody about a church, a charismatic church. We were talking about the gifts or something. He said, mm-hmm. he said the gifts, they kind of practice it with seatbelts on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, not so much so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe in the old days. It's, mm-hmm. You know, they might... Yeah, yeah. Like Paul, but, mm-hmm. but it's not done much. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a whole range. You think about, quote, charismatic. There's a whole range there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I would look for, okay, I understand. Okay, I'm not going to forbid. I'm not going to say this not at all for today. But I do see certain indications. To me, I see, a, I see a winding down. There's a difference in word there that leads me in a particular direction. I do see a spiritual purpose that definitely has an Israel context and fits a unique historical moment in the Babylonian and Assyrian captivities and again in the rejection of Jesus by a generation that tasted of the heavenly gift and yet rejected him. So I see a particular setting there that lines up with what Paul's saying here and yet I'm cautioned, don't forbid, but focus on this. So those are kind of the things that I'm holding together as I go forward. Speaking of, we better go forward. Okay, orderly worship, verse 26. What then, brothers, what's some conclusion here? We better turn the page over. Spiritual gifts are to be properly controlled and utilized for edification in the church. All spiritual gifts are subject to proper order. This is not a picking on tongues thing. This is for orderly and proper worship in the church for the building up of the body. It's not supposed to be chaotic. One, one gift or another. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or three at most, and each in turn. And let some. So again, you have certain things happening. In some churches, probably the, um, yeah, the gifts, but with seatbelts on. Okay, A lot of churches are careful to follow some of these instructions in terms of, okay, we're, it's only going to be one at a time. It's not going to be a bunch of people, different people talking in tongues all at one time. We're not going to have any of that here and um, let someone interpret. So if anybody's going to speak in a tongue, there's also going to be an interpretation of it. If there's no interpretation, then be quiet. Don't use the gift because it's not edifying. So some churches will be careful about some of these these, uh, guidelines that are given. Verse 28, there's no one to interpret. Let each of them keep silent and speak to himself and to God. That's a nice way of saying it. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting, let the first one be silent, so that they each speak in turn. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so, it's not a matter of 
To be filled with the Spirit is to be taken over by the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit that I just lose control and let God go. And whatever He says through me, I don't have any control over. That's not what Paul's saying here. That doesn't fit. We can hear that, and it sounds fun, but that's not what Paul's describing here. So that's something that's coming out of ourselves rather than from God. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. I'm glad he didn't pick on the, pick on the tongues there. This is true of all the spiritual gifts. They're to be used in orderly ways. As in all the churches of the saints. Oh, now we're getting into women. Okay, we got a new problem here. Whoops. How did that happen? How do we get to women all of a sudden? Prophecy, speaking, revelation for learning or encouragement is to be done in an orderly manner of 29 to 33a. And then we swerve into women and women's question. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Hmm. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. It is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now we've already talked about this in 1 Corinthians 11. What's going on here, and why is he bringing that up here? It's still in the context of the corporate worship service, but not merely in terms of praying and prophesying and head covering, as we saw in chapter 11. But there was also the reference of shame in chapter 11, and it had to do with a recognized sign of submission, or not, by the woman when she is publicly praying or prophesying. So that she could pray or prophesy within the church. It just she should do that in a way and have um, do something that shows that she is, is under the authority of her own husband. She's not a loose cannon on her own. And maybe even correcting other men or even correcting her own husband's prophesy, prophesying in the church. We don't know exactly what's going on, but this seems to be related to the same order or confusion or things getting a little out of hand. Okay, now I wrote some notes here under verse 34. Oops, here. As the law also says, now what in the world is going on there? What is Paul talking about? Let me open a, open a note up here. Notes, notes, notes are coming. It's just, it's thinking. Okay. One possible reference, the, and one of the things I looked for this, okay, where in the laws Paul talk about the submission of a woman? It's hard to find. Commentators are searching high and low for this. The best answer seems to be Genesis 3.16. Um, your desire will be for him, but he will rule over you. He will have the authority over you. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3.16. That's the best statement you can find. And there doesn't seem to be a need for further statements of authority beyond that within the husband-wife marriage relationship. It's understood. Moses doesn't spend a lot of time on that in other places. So, Genesis 3.16, the verse there, women is used also in verse concerning submission and ruling. And it also fits in well with 1 Corinthians 11.13. And it's not apparently a blanket statement back in 1 Corinthians 14 for women not to speak in the church. When he says to be silent, it can't, that can't be a blanket statement because he's already said in chapter 11, women can pray, 
Women can prophesy. But when it's done in the right way that demonstrates submission to their own husbands. Not submission to all the other men, but submission to their own husbands. Okay. So it's not a blanket statement about silence, as much as sometimes men want to have fun with that. Instead, it seems to apply that same submission principle from chapter 11 into a new issue. For things to be done for building up the church, and in a properly and orderly manner, and this idea of orderly, it, it, it refers to the same, there's an order even in the Godhead, where there are different roles given to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And God is a God of order even in His own relationship within the Godhead. So in every level of society, we see some aspect of order. That there is, a, there is a governor appointed who is to exercise authority and rule in society. You find that in society, you find that in the family. All aspects of human society, you have some order going on. And that's, that's this. So when you think about things being done decently or properly, they're done properly. They're done in the right way for the right end, building up one another. And they're done in an order, in a way that recognizes the order that God has made in His, i use this word again, in God's created order. In God's created universe, He has created an order and a structure that even God Himself demonstrates between the Father and the Son in particular. And so, it's not a, ever a matter of equality or value. There's not a difference of equality or value in the Godhead. But there is a orderly way, and that order seems to do with that. There's a, there's a head or a lead and a submission. Everyone is accountable to somebody. Okay, in that sense, in a properly and orderly manner, Paul gives instructions for prophets to be silent when another needs to speak. Taking your turn, doing things in order, submitting to one another, for tongues to be silent if not interpreted, submitting to the needs of the whole body versus oneself and one's desire to take part. Uh, uh, and for wives to not speak in a manner not displaying submission to her husband. Note, prophets, tongue-gifted persons, and wives are all to yield and submit themselves in some way for God's order. It's not a, a male-female thing merely. It is all throughout creation. Being, being silent at appropriate times is so that all can learn. 1 Corinthians 14, 31, and 35 both focus on that. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn. Verse 35 if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husband at home. So in each case, there's a reason, and it's, and it's associated with learning. Since the command to be silent is not absolute, in the case of both prophecy and tongues, it is also not absolute with respect to wives or women. Silence in this context means to refrain from questions, possibly. It might mean we refrain from challenging or contesting. It might be that part of what Paul's guarding against here is there might be a woman in the church who's a strong personality who is going to openly contest some of the prophesying that's going on. And we say prophesying, what do I mean by that? I don't just mean telling the future. I mean speaking concerning God's revelation. There's something about what a preacher does today if he is speaking God's revelation. The Reformers had a, had, a, had a statement that said, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. 
the preaching of God's Word, if it's God's Word that is being preached, is revelation from God. Uh, now you want to be careful how far you take that. Uh, Bob's own words don't get added to the, in the back of your Bible, the first epistle of Bob. That, don't do that. But there's in a sense, if I'm being true to God's word in my preaching, then that is a revelatory moment. God is revealing himself through the preaching of the word of God. That's what God does. So, prophecy, one of the ways that we see that happening in the churches even still, is in the preaching. I'm convinced that the Old Testament prophets were, whatever else they were, they were preachers of God's word. Isaiah was a preacher of Moses. Jeremiah was a preacher of Moses. They were preachers of special revelation given by God hundreds of years earlier, and they're preaching that word in relevant applicational ways to a covenant people of God several hundred years after the original revelation was given. That's a lot like what a preacher still does today. Well, it was hundreds of years, and then it was a thousand years, and now it's close to two thousand years since that revelation was given in the New Testament. But it's still the same basic thing. And so we, th- we, we hear about prophecy here. Think about the revealing or the speaking of God's word. A prophet is More than anything else, a prophet is a messenger of God. The first use of prophet, you know when it occurs in the scripture? The first use of a prophet is actually when God tells Moses, Aaron will be your prophet. Aaron will be your spokesman. Aaron will speak for you. The essential, Aaron will be your prophet. Aaron, uh, the essential um, job description of a prophet is to be God's messenger, to speak for God to God's people. There it is. And so hopefully the preacher still does that today. Oh, so my uh, uncle, wife's uncle, who was a preacher mm-hmm. on the charismatic side, I asked him something about what is, you know, a prophet. What, is, what, you know, do people prophesy? We're talking about future type of thing. Mm-hmm. He, he said his feeling was that prophecy was somebody speaking to you, confirming what God had already spoken to you. God has spoken something to you, and they give you, you know, talk about a word, mm-hmm. they say mm-hmm. the word or whatever. He's just confirming what's already, mm-hmm. what God has already said in your heart. I don't know if that's true or not, but that was his feeling that God did. So in some ways you're saying, well, God has revealed it, speaking. I like, I like Moses' definition better. Moses said, if any prophet... Um, speaking to you draws you away from God as he's been revealed don't listen to him so Moses said if any, if any prophet goes along and says things that are contrary to what God himself has already said in his word in his law don't listen to him don't be afraid of him so I would change that rather than what God has said to me in my heart I would change that to what God has said in his word and that's what the Bereans did they listened to Paul carefully, and then they search the scripture to see if these things Paul says is true. Paul's using the gift of prophecy, and yet they're testing the prophecy against the scripture. And elders still do that in the church. Who's responsible to make sure Bob doesn't get carried away in his own heresies? That's the job of the elders. That's probably the first job of the elders, is to make sure that doesn't happen. And so we're all accountable, and we're still practicing the same kind of guardrails that Paul has described here. 
So the silence in the church is in relation to these gifts and not being out of order. This is not that women should always be quiet in church. But they also shouldn't create a disruption. So I'm suspecting there's some kind of spiritually gifted women who are using the recognition of that spirituality to exercise authority and influence in other ways within the church. Exercising something of Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, your desire shall be for taking the lead that is in a way that's not according to God's order. Upsetting the apple cart. And now Paul says, well, you may not want to see it that way, but verse 36, was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I'm writing to you are the command of God. Now that's an interesting statement that tells us something about Paul's authority as an apostle. That there's revelation here. This is coming from God through his apostle. There's a unique kind of messenger there. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. <laughs> so Paul's pretty, pretty authoritarian here at the end. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, earnestly desire to speak to others for God from God's revelation. Speak God's revelation to others. Desire to do that. And do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things should be done decently, properly, for God's intended purposes, and in an orderly fashion, according to God's created order. Okay. We're five minutes past. Any questions? Free for all time. No, no, we're fine. Question, questions are good. I could. Well, since we're older, 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 churches get the, the rules about no women should be behind the pulpit or speak from the pulpit, and you know, I, I've been to churches where a woman will never be allowed to speak from the pulpit. And and some churches not even to do the Bible reading, not to lead in prayer, etc. Uh, well, I can't say where people get things. Probably the 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 um, more the more controlling passage would be where Paul says to Timothy, "I do not allow a woman to to teach or exercise authority over a man." And so, uh, to put those two together, to 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 teach or preach authoritatively, thus says the Lord, in that setting with men, would be seeming to fit what Paul is describing, what he does not do in the churches. I would, I would approach it from another direction in terms of uh, the, uh, the um, pastoral teaching, the role of pastor, elder, and overseer, translated bishop. Those are, those are, are, are different words that relate to the, the man, the office, and the role of a pastor-elder. So pastor, pastors are elders in the faith, um, presbyteros, gray-haired ones, who are to oversee the church. So they shepherd as overseers exercising authority over, spiritual authority and guidance over, as those who are elders in the faith. The elders in the Old Testament were the mature leaders of the family. The elders within a church are to shepherd as the elders, spiritually elder, spiritually mature, in the family. 
And so that role of elder, pastor, I equate together because they're used, those terms are used interchangeably, passage to passage, and yet an elder is to be a man. Uh, clearly, as Paul describes it both in Timothy and Titus, where they're to appoint elders, that they, they are to be men. And so unless you can conclude that those descriptions in, by Paul to Timothy and Titus are culturally limited, because that was the culture of the day, then that means elders and therefore pastors are not women, but they are men. And that then goes back to, it's simply a matter of God's created a certain order. And he's created order and he's created responsibility within that. And uh, there's all, it doesn't mean that a woman might not be gifted pastorally to shepherd, but that she doesn't hold the, the office of a shepherd and overseer of the church. She may shepherd people very well. In fact, uh, with, with Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla, the woman, seems to be the lead role in that couple's discipling of Apollos, who's a preacher. And so they disciple him, and Priscilla seems to have at least a significant role in that because she's mentioned first. And yet, that's not within the church and teaching the church. That's a, a personal discipling happening off to the side. And I know an elderly lady in Mississippi, Mom Van, who discipled a lot of men who went on to be pastors and teachers. And yet it wasn't uh, in her preaching in the church, but it was her imparting her spiritual wisdom to them in an in a individual relationship. Even after her husband had passed on, she still had that motherly role in the church. I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah, she was, she was a teacher and a shepherd. And, and that gift should be exercised in the church for the edification of elders. Of others. Now you had another question, Monica. Uh, so if, I guess I'm assuming that all women in, in that time period was assumed that they would all marry. Not that someone would just never found husbands. Oh no, not necessarily. In fact, Paul encourages in chapter 7, Paul encouraged some to not marry. Or if they became single, not necessarily to remarry. You can. You don't have a husband to ask you know, for guidance or whatever. Ah. Mm -hmm. so, or, or that husband is a non-believer. Who would be the next in line to... Well, if the husband's a non-believer, that's a little trickier. Because the woman is not under subjection to all men, but to her husband. It's not a it's not a male female thing. It's a wife husband thing, and that wife husband thing portrays that the church is to be submissive to Christ, not the church telling Jesus what to do. You see, we're not supposed to usurp our authority over Jesus. A lot of times we tell we tell God what to do, and it isn't supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be the other way, and so that's portrayed then in the in the human marriage relationship. But outside of marriage, well, now wait a minute. Now we're talking about a different animal, and how that would play out. He's not exactly said here. So I'm going to be I'm going to be cautious. How would I just go off on my own and wade off into the into the woods here? But um, it, this is a this is a, a a a marriage thing. So that that single woman would well in. She's going to ask. Is she going to is she going to ask one of the elders of the church? Is she going to ask her question of 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 another woman? Let the older women teach the younger women. That would also be appropriate. So it's a good question. It's a thoughtful question because yes, there are single women, but this is a limitation. It's a limitation to married women to recognize and reinforce 
God's order within their marriage. You get the question over here, Ty, Sarah? Oh, that was pretty much my question. Oh, great, tracking together. Well, let's pause here before any other questions emerge. And then if you have more afterwards, want to linger, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. You can, yes, you can have it and you can eat it. Would you give thanks for the cake and the time and the word, Steve? Dear Lord, we're so thankful that we can be in your presence, Lord, discuss your word. Your word is who you are, Lord. And, uh, Lord, we just thank you for giving it to us. We pray that you'll just uh, bless these words to our heart. Help us as we as we go through these and, and, and question uh, some of the discussions we've had for ourselves, Lord, and, and uh, ask you to reveal more to us, Lord, so we can grow in faith, Lord, and, and, uh, and know you better. Lord, we just pray you this blessed this evening. Each everyone here in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.